Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Job. The book of Job. All you have to do is open your Bibles to the middle. You're in the book of Psalms and turn back one book and you're in the book of Job. That only works for a Bible, not on your iPhone. You can find that on your own. The book of Job is about a man who went through a tough time, to say the least. And many people, because Job went through a tough time, equate the book of Job with suffering, and certainly there's a lot of suffering in the book of Job, but that is not what this book is about. As we've seen, the book of Job can, can best be described with these questions. Can I believe God when life doesn't make sense? Can you do that? Can I believe God? Can I trust God when I can't explain him? Why should I serve God? And in my Bible, right above the book of Job, I've written these three words to describe the book. Is God enough? Strip away everything else, all the perks, all the blessings, all the stuff, just God, only God. Is God enough? Charles Colson, many of you know uh, that name. Uh, Colson worked in the Nixon administration. He got in trouble in Watergate, went to prison. And it was right before prison when he trusted in Christ. A lot of people thought he was just using it as a crutch, you know, because he got in trouble. But it was the real deal. When he got out of prison, he started a prison fellowship and had just a huge impact uh, in, uh, in the Christian community. He's one of my favorite speakers of all time to listen to. He was captivating. He wrote a lot of books. One book was a book called The Faith. And in The Faith, he, he kind of does a kind of a history of, the Christ, of Christianity. And, and he talks about all the people through history who, who suffered. And, and one of the things he talks about in the book is the inevitability of suffering in the Christian life. We know that, right? We're going to go through challenges. It's not the prosperity gospel that says, you know, you, you just give to God and you get all these blessings. You know, he's just up there like a genie, just whipping these, all your wishes out. But he says, suffering is inevitable. And then he says this. Listen to what he says. The real question is not whether we will suffer, but how we will react to adversity when it comes. We can see it as a miserable experience to be endured or we can offer it to God for his redemptive purposes. A miserable experience to be endured, man, it's tough, right? It's painful. Or we can offer it to God for his redemptive purposes. So let me just add one question to our theme of Job. Can I believe God when life doesn't make sense? Can I trust God when I can't explain him? Why should I serve God? Is God enough? Here's Colson's question. Will I offer my suffering to God for his redemptive purposes? And what does that even mean? We'll talk about that today. Story of Job starts with a man who was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned from evil. That only the writer not only describes Job in those words, but God himself describes God, Job in those same words. Now, that does not mean Job was sinless. It doesn't mean that he was different than you and me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that describes Job just as it describes us. What it means is Job wasn't living in any known sin. 
He wasn't living in any blatant sin. There's a difference, isn't there? To be a sinner and living in known sin. Job was not doing that. He argues that case very strongly today. His obedience and his integrity was a pattern of his life, and God blessed him with this tremendous wealth. He had, he had uh, all kinds of money. He had all kinds of flocks and camels and herd. He had 10 children, and they all got along. Well, imagine that. Wouldn't that be a blessing? Every birthday, every time one of them had a birthday, the, re- the other nine came, and they had this great celebration. Man, what a great life Job had until it just all was taken away with a heart of grief, body broken by disease. Most of Job is, is this man who, who had been the greatest man in all the East sitting as an outcast at the garbage dump, the city dump. He needed comfort. He needed encouragement. He needed prayer. He needed sympathy. He needed just people to sit with him and help him endure another miserable day And he had three friends come. He had a lot of friends, we assume, but he had three friends come. They listened for seven days, and then they started talking, and and they instructed Job, and they rebuked Job, and they challenged Job. This hurting man, they wanted to fix his desperate situation. Eliphaz was the first one, and Eliphaz based everything on, uh, uh, everything he said on experience because he knew everything because he had experienced everything. You know, people, they experience everything, so they know everything. And Eliphaz, I've experienced everything, so I know everything, and you are a sinner. Job, that's just the bottom line. You have sinned greatly. Bildad, he said, nah, I'm based it on history, and I'm going to go a little different route with this. God is just, and since God is just, he would not punish you, Job, if you hadn't done something really bad. Because if he punished you and you weren't a sinner, that'd be injustice. Zophar is the guy we're going to look at today. He was, he was a dogmatist. And Zophar had nothing new to say. You know those people? Zophar, he speaks last. He listens, and then he just repeats everything everybody else says. I heard, a past, I heard of a pastor who, after the service, three people came up uh, to him, and um, the first person said in a loud voice so everyone could hear, that was absolutely the worst sermon I've ever heard. And the second person came in a loud voice so everyone could hear, said not only was that the worst sermon, I can't believe they pay you to do that. And the third guy came and he said, hey. He said, don't listen to those guys. They don't have a mind of their own. They just walk around saying what everyone else is saying. I am 0 for 3 on that. I had such expectations for that little story. Anyway, that's Zophar, right? He just walks around saying what everyone else is saying. And we see that in chapter 11, verse 1, or verse 2. Now he's talking to Job. Should a multitude of words go unanswered? Job, you just keep talking and talking and talking. A man full of talk be judged right. Should your babble silence men? And when you mock... Shall no one shame you, Job? You are a windbag. We've heard that before, right? From Bildad and Eliphaz. And then he starts mocking Job. Look at verse 4. 
For you say, Job, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. Come on, Job. You wouldn't be sitting here at the dump if your doctrine was pure and you're clean in God's eyes. Look at verse five. But oh, that God would speak and open your lips for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt desires. You know what he's saying? Job, God's letting you off easy. You deserve much worse. Quite an encourager, right? Then he gets to the same remedy as the other ones. Again, he has nothing new to say. Verse 13, with God, our, our verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 13, if you prepare your heart, Job, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then, if you do that, if you just repent, Job, surely then you will lift up your face without blemish and you'll be secure and you'll not fear and you will forget your misery. You'll remember it as waters that have passed by Job. If you just repent, this will be behind you. Just say you're a sinner. Gotta repent. One of the many things I love about Job is that even sitting in his great pain, he never lose, loses his gift of sarcasm. And it is a great gift, isn't it, sarcasm? Chapter 12, verse 2, Job says, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. When you guys die, wisdom is gone. But I have understood as well as you, I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? And even in the midst of his pain and the, in, in the midst of his embarrassment, Job's embarrassed by this. He still holds to his innocence. Look at verse four. I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me. There was a time when God, God and I were on good speaking terms. A just and blameless man am, now I'm a laughingstock. Remember, these friends of Job saying that he had sinned and needed to repent, they were in the moral majority. That's what a lot of people think, right? God zaps you when you sin. He, he doesn't zap you if you don't sin. Job, you were a great, great man. Job, you were the greatest man in all the East. You were, had honor, you had prestige, you had all this money. But Job, you're a joke. It was all a facade. You're a hypocrite. Man, you must have been sinning terribly during those times when it looked like everything was good. You're now an object of ridicule. Job, you are right. You are a laughingstock. Let's stop there for a truth we see throughout this book. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. Suffering is not always the result of sin. Now, sometimes it is. Drunkenness has its consequences. According to the National Council of Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, alcohol is a factor in 40% of all violent crimes, murder, rape, assault, child abuse, spousal abuse, 40% alcohol-related. 80% of 
of our nation's prison population abused drugs or alcohol. Does sin have consequences? Yeah. Every day, every day in our country, 36 people lose their life and 700 people are injured in car crashes that involve alcohol impaired driver. So that's just one example. There are some sins that have consequences. And because some sins have consequences, the natural conclusion is what? All sins have consequences. I, sp- I spoke with a, uh, Laura and I were with a couple last night and, and uh, we were talking about Job and, and this couple said they, uh, they were in another church and they, um, their baby was stillborn. And the church rallied around them and did a great job, but one couple came to them and said, do you wonder what sin was in your life that caused this to happen? So Job's friends are not the minority. The disciples thought the same thing. John chapter 9, Jesus passed by and he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Why is he born blind? He had something, some, he had his sin or his parents' sin since he was born blind. But notice what Jesus says. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. But now we get to the issue, right? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him in his suffering. Some suffering we see in the book of Job, we know it in the book of Job, comes to the blameless and upright who aren't far from perfect, but, but they're, what they're going through is not a result of sin. Why? Why does that happen to them? We may never know. Our whys may go unanswered. But there are two things we do know. One is this, God is sovereign. This is a tough truth in our sufferings, but God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, that means he either directed something to happen or he allowed something to happen, right? There's no other conclusion. If he's in control, if he's completely sovereign, directs it or he allows it. And Job knew that. Job knew that truth. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. He says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. I'm not denying that God is sovereign. I don't get this. But I'm not denying God is sovereign. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, then they, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom, and the deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges. He makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their lips. Look at verse 19. He leads priests away and overthrows the mighty. Verse 20, he deprives speech. The, uh, he deprives the speech, uh, of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. Verse 21, he pours contempt on the princes. Verse 22, he, under, he, under, he uncovers the, the deeps uh, 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 out of darkness. Verse 23, he makes nations great and then he destroys other nations. 
He enlarges nations and he leads some away. Job says, I'm not arguing that he's sovereign. I get that. I know his ways are higher than my ways. I, I don't understand his ways. I know that some of God's ways are mysterious, at least from a human standpoint, from our vantage point. And, and that's what Job's struggling with. Hey, God, I know you're there and I know you're sovereign. I just don't get why you're doing this. Now we know this, and Jesus said this in John 9. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. All things, what? Work together for good to those who love God, to those who called according to his purpose. We don't understand it. We don't get it. It is painful. We ask why, but we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. That's not the verse you first share with someone who's suffering. But that's a deep truth. It's a deep truth that echoes in our pain. So when suffering, sooner or later, we're all going to go through it, we have to come back to Colson's question, remember? Will I offer my suffering to God for his redemptive purposes? Job is now done with his friends. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. He says, um, what you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, I'm done with you. You are whitewashed with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. I got no use for you anymore. But I want to try my case before God. I want to argue my case with him. Look at verse 15. Job says, though he, I, want to, I want my case before God, and though he slay me, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. I want a trial date with God. Job is saying, I'm going to take my case directly to God. I'm going to argue my case to God's face. I know I'm taking my life in my own hands. He, may, he might slay me, I may be missing something. He may slay me. But if he doesn't, it'll prove my innocence. And Job is confident that his innocence is going to be proved. He is confident he's going to win the case with God. Look at verse 18. Behold, I have prepared my case, and I know that I shall be in the right. I'll stop there for another lesson. Suffering is ultimately between the sufferer and God, right? Job's argument all along has not been with his friends. They have just been an annoyance to him. He keeps saying, I want my case before God. And we learn from Job, and we know that from experience, that suffering is between the sufferer and God. And guys, that is why it is so important to be in God's word every day. That's why it is so important to be in God's word every day so you're getting the spiritual nourishment you need 
so you are getting the spiritual truth you need so when the inevitable storm hits, you have an anchor to hang on to. When the winds are blowing, when the storm's hitting, you have an anchor to hold on to. Pity the person who doesn't get into God's word, who doesn't hold to those truths, and then the storm hits and that person is up for grabs. If you are going through, uh, if, you, if you learn you need surgery, right? If you learn you need surgery tomorrow, do you want to be in good physical condition or bad physical condition? If I learn I need surgery tomorrow, I want to be in the best physical condition I can be in so that I can handle what's ahead of me well, right? If you know you're going through suffering, you want to be in bad spiritual condition or good spiritual condition. You can only do that being in good spiritual condition if you're in God's word. There's no, there, is, there is no substitute for that. That's where you hang on to the truth. And you also need to be in spiritual community. Because there are times our suffering is just between God, but there are times, man, when we need people to hold on to us as we hold on to the anchor of truth. And we need people to help us walk through it. Don't wait until suffering comes. I just am, you know, if suffering comes and you're not prepared for it, we're going to walk with you and we're going to help you as best we can. But man, I just dread those times when people come and they are spiritually immature and they, ne- they, don't, they don't read their Bible and then it hits and they're up for grabs. They don't have the truth hidden here. They can't go back and hang on to anything. Make sure you're in God's word. There's just no substitute. I'm like Zophar. You've heard that before, right? But there's just no substitute to God's word. In chapter 20, Zophar speaks again, but he really doesn't have anything to say, new to say. And when Job responds, he just ignores Zophar altogether. And he goes right to God. Verse chapter 29 through 31. Turn, turn over there. 29 through 31. The first thing Job does in chapter 29, this is interesting, is Job reflects on his life. And he, he goes back and he thinks about how his life was. He wants to go back. You can't go back, can you? But boy, he wants to. Chapter 29, verse 2, he says, Oh, that I were in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me. Boy, I love those days. When his lamp shone on my head and by his light I walked through darkness. I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. Man, I'd love to go back to those days. One, one thing that's interesting, as Job reflects on life and what he'd like to go back to the very first thing he says is I want to go back to the time when God's presence was in my home and my kids were all around me. And then he said, I want to go back to the time where I had some respect. Look at verse 8. The young men saw me and withdrew and the aged rose and stood and the princes refrained from talking and they laid their hands over their mouth and the voices of the nobles were hushed. Man, there was a time when I carried some weight. I love that respect again. 
Then he said, I want to go back to ministering to the needy. Look at verse 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. Look at verse 16. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause for him whom I did not know. I broke the things of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Man, I'd love to be able to do that again. And then he says, there was a time when I mentored and encouraged people. 21, verse 21, men listened to me and waited and, and they kept silent from, for my counsel. Verse 25, I, I chose their way and sat as chief. I, I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. I was a mentor. I was an encourager. And Job says, I would love to go back to those times. But you can't go back, can you? Here's the third thing we learn today in this section. As tempting as it is, there's great danger in trying to live backwards, longing for the past. It just doesn't work. It's just, it's just, it's just not real. J.I. Packer, um, tremendous theologian, and wrote a lot of books. And when he was 89 years old, he wrote a book. I encourage you to read it. It's a little book. Uh, it's called Finishing the Course with Joy. Finishing strong. Finishing the Course with Joy. Anyone read that? Listen to what he said. He, he's, he was 89 when he wrote this. This is to all of you who long for the what? The good old days. Daydreaming and indulgence and nostalgia are unhappy habits making for unrealism and discontent. Like all bad habits, they tighten their grip on us until we set ourselves against them and with God's help, break them. If you live your life longing for the good old days, it ain't gonna happen. Daydreaming and indulgence and nostalgia are unhappy habits making for unrealism and discontent. Another writer says it this way, if we focus on the glories of the past and ignore the opportunities of the present, we will be unprepared to meet the future. Now that doesn't mean we, we discount all that God's done. I mean, that's how we move forward. That's how we have trust and, and we build our faith because we see what God did in the past and now we know he can do it in the future. So I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about living backwards. It's, it is an unhealthy habit, as Packer says. So again, Colson's question, will you offer your suffering to God for his redemptive purposes today? It's all we have today, Right? so that he can prepare us for tomorrow. In chapter 30, Job bemoans his state. He says, I have no respect. I have no blessing. I have no future. I have no ministry. As one commentator said, Job at one point had the respect of the most respectable, and now he has contempt of the most contemptible. And so Job is going back to God, and he's not shy from aiming his issues right to God. Look at chapter 30, 
uh, verse 22, or verse 20 rather. I cry to you, God, I'm crying to you for help. Why don't you answer me? You don't answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Here I am, I'm standing, I'm pleading my cause, and you just look at me. Boy, verse 21 is a tough one. Job says, you have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me on the wind, and you make me ride on it. It's like I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, my body's just flapping in the wind. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm. Pretty harsh words to God, isn't it? By the way, God can handle that. God can handle your cries. God can handle your words. He can handle Job's words. He handled David's words when David in the Psalms said many times the same thing, and he can handle yours. A lot of people say, man, I, you know, I said something to God, and I really regret that. You know what? He knew you were going to say it. You don't say something before you think it, right? And he knew, he knows what we're thinking. Just don't fool yourself to say just because you didn't say it, he didn't know it, and he can handle it. That's part, of, that's part of the relationship with him. That's part of pouring our heart out to him. He can handle our difficult times. Job ends his words with a final declaration of innocence. This is interesting. In chapter 31, the last words that Job speaks, we have one more friend, Elihu, and then God finally speaks. But in chapter 31, Job says, God, I'm standing before you. This is my summary of my defense. This is, this, is, this is a summary of my case. And I want to tell you what I know to be true in my heart. I'm denying all these sins that people are accusing me of. Look at verse 31, or chapter 31, verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Another translation said, not to look lustfully at a virgin. I, I am not, I deny the sin of lust. Today he would say, I deny the sin of pornography. It is not in my life. Look at verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. I deny the sin of dishonesty. That is not who I am. Look at verse 9. If my heart has enticed, has been enticed toward another woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down before her. I deny the sin of adultery. Verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, I deny the sin of injustice. I treated those who worked for me with justice. Look at verse 16. If I withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, I am denying right now the sin of oppressing the poor and needy. I helped the fatherless. I helped the widow. I helped the needy. Look at verse 24. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, 
if I have rejoiced because of my wealth, my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, I deny, Job says, the sin of materialism. I am free from these patterns of sin. Job goes through about 12 sins in this, in this whole passage. And then look at verse 35. This is bold stuff. Job says, oh, that I had God, oh, that I had one to hear me. I'm talking to you. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Look at 35. Here's my signature. Here's my name. I am writing my name on this. Just in case you think someone else is saying this, here's my signature. Job, J-O-B. Let the Almighty answer me. God, it's your turn to talk. Surely I would carry it on my, oh, that I had an indictment written by my adversary. Should I, surely I, I would carry it on my shoulder and I would bind it as a crown. Job's saying there, if I had all these indictments against me, I would put them on my shoulders and I'd walk around, but all of them would be proven false and they would become a crown of my innocence rather than indictment on me. God, I am blameless and I don't get why you're doing this chapter 40 chapter uh, 31 verse 40 look at the end the words of Job are what ended and Job stands there or sits there waiting on God to respond God it's your turn I've said everything I'm going to say it's your turn and you know what God does He's, Job's saying, if I'm, if I'm innocent, then God, what are you doing? And if I am wrong, then bring down the fire on me. And you know what God does? Nothing. He just remains silent. God will not be coerced or pressured into action by anyone's demand. And he's not ready to talk yet. He will be, and he has a lot to say. We'll look at Elihu next week, one more friend, and then God speaks. We'll take a couple weeks on that. So there's where we leave Job. Um, summary defense. It's your time to speak, God. I'm waiting on you, and maybe that's where we'll leave you today. Maybe that's where you are today. So I'm going to go back to that Colson question. The real question, Colson said, is not whether we will suffer, but how we will react to adversity when it comes. We can see it as a miserable experience to be endured, or we can offer it to God for his redemptive purposes. We can offer it to God for his redemptive purposes. We're going to hand back over to the campuses uh, now as you guys close on your own. We're going to have our worship team come out as they're coming out. Let's just think about that. How do you do that? How do you hand your suffering over to God for his redemptive purposes? I, I don't know. I thought about, you know, we could put our challenges and our suffering on a card, Right? and then we could drop it off by the cross. We do that often. You could do that. You, could still, you can do that. You know, maybe it's just a symbol. You go home, and, and you get your journal, and you, just, you write out, God, here I am, my Job. What are you doing? 
and, and then you offer it to him. Maybe you burn it or shred it up. I don't know. So I, so I don't know what, what, what physical way you, you want to hand it over to God, but, but as we're getting ready to sing, let's just pray. Let's bow our heads and, and talk to God before we sing. If you bow your heads, I, just think about that challenge you got going on in your life. It's not, maybe it's not a Job challenge. Maybe it is a Job challenge. It's your challenge to you. How, how can we hand it over to God for his redemptive purposes? Stewing on it's not doing us a bit of good. Thinking about the past isn't helping out. Just thinking about it makes us anger and angry and, and, and bitter and hurt. So God, how do we do that? How do we hand it over to you? We want to do that, Lord. So we take, we take that pain, we take that challenge, and right now in our hearts, with our hands held out, we just give it, we give it to you. We're tired of struggling. We're exhausted. We're exhausted from the struggle. We're, we're, we're grieving. We're hurting. We're fearful. We can't handle it on our own. So we give it over to you. And Lord, we may have to do the same thing this afternoon. And I know with my stuff, I'm going to have to do the same thing tomorrow because I like to grab it back. I like to try to fix stuff on my own. I like to even wallow in the pain sometimes. So help me give it back. Because Father, the only way you can prepare me for tomorrow is for me to give give you my stuff today. Tomorrow, Jesus said tomorrow is going to have enough trouble of its own. So help us not to carry today's issues into tomorrow. Just help us to give it to you. Whatever that looks like in our life right now, we pray, Lord, that we would just pray this prayer each person. Lord, it's all yours. And if I have to say that a hundred times a day, I'll say it a hundred times a day. God, it's all yours. Give me the strength and help I need. Even if I don't understand what's going on, even if I don't get the answers, Lord, take it and use it. Because I know this truth, as hard as it is to say, sometimes I don't even like to say it, but I know, Lord, this truth, that you do, you really do work all things together for good to those who love you. And even my pain, I know that. I love you. And I've been called according to your purpose. So take it, Father. Use it, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.